Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. There are just some things you should never mix, or you can't mix them. Oil and water, for example. Nitro and glycerin, a bad idea. Tequila and, uh, well, it's probably not a good idea to mix tequila with anything other than salt, lemon, and maybe a little fruit juice. They used to say this about rock and rap music, too, and they were pretty adamant about it. When rap and hip-hop started seeping into the mainstream in the middle 1980s, it immediately polarized people. Those who didn't or refused to get it were aggressively dismissive of what rap brought to the table. That's not rap, they'd say. That's crap. This isn't music. It's just bad poetry over beats stolen from another record. It took a few years, but by the time we got into the 1990s, Hip-hop and rap was becoming a very powerful musical and cultural force. And today, it is the genre when it comes to driving culture. After half a century of being in charge, rock has, frankly, fallen to second place. But not only that, a chunk of the rock scene has been co-opted into hip-hop, creating a new series of hybrid sounds. The original post-punk alt-rock audience had aged. The older, set-in-their-ways crowd was pushed out by a new generation who didn't have any preconceived notions or baggage when it came to these new sounds. To them, rap was just another form of exciting new music. So, by the end of the 1980s, there were signs that punk, funk, rap, hip-hop, and metal were all becoming inextricably intertwined. And who knew that in a few years we'd be talking about this thing called new metal? This is part five of our look back on the alt-rock of the 1990s. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is chapter five of a study of the alt-rock 90s. And it's time that we turn to our attention to hip-hop's influence on alternative music. And we'll need to spread this discussion over two parts if we're going to do it justice. Here's something that a lot of people have forgotten or may have never known. When rap and hip-hop first emerged, it was so new and so different that it was originally embraced by some quarters of the alternative scene. It was new, it was different, it was non-mainstream. Plus, in the context of the day, it was a bit weird, and in some cases, annoying to large swaths of music fans. All those criteria ticked the boxes on what qualified as alternative music back then. So, for a while, it wasn't unusual to hear Run DMC or Eric B. and Rakim played next to Depeche Mode on alternative radio stations. But then hip-hop found its footing and exploded into a genre of its own. And now it's, it's a monstrously popular form of music. Along the way, though, it did leave its mark on alt-rock, especially through the 1990s. But if we're going to understand how that happened, we once again have to dig into the 70s and 80s, and we're going to have to go back a little deeper this time. Funk sounds had been a part of alt-rock since the original punk rock days. Just go back and listen to the bass lines of songs from bands like The Slits or Public Image Limited, Gang of Four, The Bad Brains, early Red Hot Chili Peppers. That marriage of punk and funk set the stage for another marriage with rap and hip-hop. This annoyed some. But as usual, there were rebels who either didn't know or didn't care that they weren't supposed to like rap. Such was the case with Faith No More. They were formed in San Francisco in 1982, and by 1985, they had a rather substantial cult following in the Bay Area, even though they had trouble finding a singer for a while. A woman named Courtney Love was their front person for a time. Yes, her. By the mid-80s, they had a real thing going on. 
crunchy metallic guitars, heavy beats, and a rap-style vocal delivery. Along with Primus, their funky brothers from across the bay, nobody was doing this kind of thing in 1985, which is why this single stood out so much. Early Faith No More, featuring singer Chuck Mosley and We Care A Lot. That's from 1985. A few months later, in May of 1986, Rick Rubin, the head of a new label called Def Jam, had an inspired idea. He was a metalhead from way back, but he also loved the new sounds of rap. So he convinced Run DMC to team up with Aerosmith on a cover of an Aerosmith classic. The result simultaneously resurrected Aerosmith's dead career while bringing rap to a bunch of white kids, and vice versa. That was a big hit, reaching number four in the American charts and number 17 in Canada. And again, for many people, this fusion of styles was their first ever exposure to this new thing called rap. While Aerosmith was making metal history by incorporating this new rap crunch into their sound, three kids from New York were going at the problem from the opposite direction. The Beastie Boys originally started as a punk band, but as they spent more time in the clubs of New York, they became fascinated with the music that was coming from the projects in the streets. Around the same time Faith No More was telling us how much they cared, the Beastie Boys were using rock samples and big beats behind their three-way raps. And in 1986, they hit on the formula that spun punk, rock, rap, funk, and hip-hop into a globally successful thing. The Beasties managed to successfully mix and match two diametrically opposed musical genres. They showed that there could be plenty of common ground between metal and rap. And of course, things completely exploded with their License to Ill album, which came out on November 15th in 1986. What many people forget is that this record was the first rap album to top the charts. And yeah, it's a bit weird that society had to wait until three white rappers came along to make rap mainstream. But the bottom line is that the Beastie Boys brought rap and hip hop to a whole new audience, including all these white kids out in the suburbs, the ones most prone to, say, forming metal bands. And it's also important to point out the Led Zeppelin drum samples and the fact that Kerry King of Slayer played a lot of guitar in this record. The metal and rap attitudes mixed and meshed better than anyone could have guessed. And, uh, yeah, well, you know the story. The Beastie Boys from License to Ill, the first ever rap album to hit number one on the charts and a record that introduced countless millions to the sounds of hip hop. But they weren't the only ones working on breaking down those walls between black and white music. We can't forget about Living Color. Back in the 80s, rock was almost completely segregated, even though metal owed a big debt to black guys like Jimi Hendrix and Phil Linnett of Thin Lizzy. Punk, of course, had had groups like Bad Brains and Fishbone, and let's not even start on the immeasurable contributions black culture has made to the development of rock and roll in the first place. But even if you knew all that, the sight and sound of living color was a revelation in the middle 1980s. 
four black guys from New York playing heavy, hard rock. And not only that, they were regular performers at CBGB, the world's most famous punk club. In 1988, they released a debut album entitled Vivid. And for many, this was an eye-opening, ear-opening, mind-expanding experience. It was metal and punk and soul and jazz and rap. Living Color became MTV Heroes and ended up winning a bunch of Grammy Awards. Living Color and Cult of Personality from 1988. There's one more record that we need to slide in here before we leave the 80s and actually start talking about alt-rock in the 1990s. On August 16, 1989, the Red Hot Chili Peppers finally caught a break with their fourth album called Mother's Milk. It had come after an ugly few years, with guitarist Hillel Slovak dying of a heroin overdose and a succession of drummers that didn't work out. And, if we're honest, their punk-funk sound had originally been too far ahead of its time. But by the summer of 89, the alt-rock world had caught up with them, and they staked out a claim on this brave new frontier with this scorching cover of a Stevie Wonder classic. Chili Peppers and Higher Ground. Okay, a big milestone. And for that, we must return to Faith No More. June 20th, 1989. That's the day on which they released their third studio album, a record called The Real Thing. At first, it just kind of sat there through its first two singles. But in January 1990, a third single was released. It was a stomping mix of hard rock, metal, and rap. The video... Remember the poor little fish was shown endlessly on MTV and it became a massive, massive hit. Top 10, top 40 hit in America, if you can believe it. And just as we saw with the Beastie Boys, it found purchase with white kids in the suburbs. And through songs like this, they were discovering rap. So here we are at the end of the 1980s. Thanks to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, mixing punk and funk is seen as a good thing. Thanks to Faith No More, the metal kids have been gently introduced to rap and hip-hop. Thanks to Faith No More and the Beastie Boys, rap had finally infiltrated the suburbs. And thanks to Living Color, everybody saw how it all could work together. It was manifested in the work of new groups with names like Consolidated and MC 900 Foot Jesus. It was the beginning of a new coexistence. And the result was the palette of alt-rock just got more and more broad as a new flavor of alt-rock was born. We'll pick it up there in a second. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is Chapter 5 on our look back on the alt-rock of the 1990s, and we're acknowledging the immense influence hip-hop had on this music. During a previous chapter on the women of the alt-rock 90s, 
We noted that the decade began with Generation X's restatement of the punk rock credo that anyone with anything to say should be allowed to say it, regardless of musical ability, class, sex, religion, or race. Isms of all kinds were denounced, especially sexism and racism. And one of the best examples of this was the establishment of a particular traveling music festival. In 1991, Jane's Addiction singer Perry Farrell came up with the idea of an all-encompassing, genre-bending traveling roadshow he called Lollapalooza. If you were around at the time, you probably remember the critics. A festival featuring alternative rock and hardcore rap bands? Ah, never, never gonna work. I mean, the public just won't accept that kind of mix. You have to stay in your lane. Yeah, well, tell that to all the punks and alternative kids and goth rockers who had their eyes open to new possibilities when presented with rap stars like Ice-T and Ice Cube and A Tribe Called Quest and George Clinton and Cypress Hill, not to mention Living Color. Like the Chili Peppers and the Beastie Boys before them, Perry Farrell had found a way to bridge a series of racial and social barriers. Now, pardon all the language edits in this song, but it's, it's just too important not to include in our story. This is one of the stars of the 91 Lollapalooza story. It's Ice-T and Body Count. Body Count's in the high. Body count. Right about now in the place to be. On the base, I got my main mother called Moose Man. Laying the rhythm tracks, I got the one and only infamous D-Rock in the half. On the drums, I got the one and only Beatmaster V. On the guitars, I got my Ernie C. And I'm Ice T, bitch. Ice-T and Body Count, one of the bands in the first ever Lollapalooza tour in 1991. This crossbreeding of styles inspired others to experiment in the same direction. This is also from 1991. Anthrax was a speed metal band. They still are. They're cut from the same cloth as Metallica and Megadeth. And in 1991, the year after Faith No More scored with Epic, they decided it would be cool if they teamed up with Public Enemy for a metal update of their 1987 track, Bring the Noise. The result really rocked and was really popular. We got to demonstrate. Come on now. They're going to have to wait till we get it right. Radio stations like Western and Blackness, they call us a black, but we'll see if they'll play this. Turn it up. Bring the noise. That Anthrax Public Enemy collaboration proved to a lot of people that there was some kind of middle ground between guitar-based rock and full-on rap. They started to think this through. Both forms of music were aggressive and in-your-face. Both forms of music were big into heavy beats, which sounded great on car stereos and in clubs. You could dance or mosh. Take your pick. And not least of all, this music really annoyed parents. Never underestimate the attractiveness of driving mom and dad nuts with whatever you're playing in your room. And it was all about to get bigger, harder, louder, and fatter. Hang tight. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Okay, time for a bit of a detour, but I promise this will circle back to our discussion on how hip-hop influenced the alt-rock in the 1990s. At exactly the same time Lollapalooza was on the road in the summer of 1991, Metallica released their famous Black Album. Now, up until this record, Metallica was all about raw speed and raw power. But with this record, Canadian super producer Bob Rock got them to slow down a bit and polished up their sound. 
Speedmail purists screamed in horror, but the fact remains that this record sold more than 15 million copies. It was a huge breakthrough, which brought Metallica's brand of metal to more people than ever. It was also the start of a careful repositioning of the Metallica brand. Yeah, they were still metal, but they also began to play up metal's place as music for outsiders and misfits, people who didn't fit and didn't want to fit in the mainstream. It was subtle, but the message was, hey, you know, if we use that criteria, then Metallica kind of qualifies as alternative, you know? That, of course, annoyed alt-rock purists, but this new branding was pushed through. And with bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam selling tens of millions of records, it really wasn't that much of a stretch when you think about it. There was an image problem and a reputation issue, but that could be overcome. All right, explain how the release of Metallica's Black Album figures into how hip-hop influenced alt-rock. Okay, let's let's just review a few things at the start of the 1990s. Rap and hip-hop are finally starting to get props from the public. It really helped that there were organizations like the PMRC who were pushing things like parental advisory stickers on rap albums and demanding that record labels censor these artists. Nothing will get a kid into a form of music faster than by telling them they can't listen. And it goes without saying that rap was rebellious and anti-establishment and that parents hated it. Against this background, the alt-rock scene is starting to coalesce around the tastes of Generation X. Groups like Jane's Addiction and the Pixies are starting to get noticed. Metallica is being groomed and packaged for mass consumption. Punk funk bands like the Chili Peppers seem to be poised for a breakthrough. Thanks to the Beastie Boys, rap and hip-hop had topped the charts by taking a route through the white kids in the suburbs. And, like I said, the popularity of rap and hip-hop by black artists is exploding. Now we need to add grunge to the mix. The whole Nirvana changed the course of rock was pretty much covered in our previous chapter on grunge, so we won't belabor that point too much, but we gotta mention it again. With Nirvana and all their grunge peers, the gap started to close between punk and old-school metal. Guys like Kurt Cobain and the dudes from Soundgarden and Alice in Chains weren't shy about saying, hey, don't diss Black Sabbath and Judas Priest and Kiss. They were pretty good bands. They were all huge influences on our music. Yeah, we were into The Clash and Black Flag and The Replacements and The Dead Kennedys too, but we think that some of those old hard rock and metal bands were kind of cool. Then guys like Billy Corgan started saying the same thing. Some of those old ACDC records, pretty great riffs, man. Ozzy, Zeppelin, cool too. Throughout the early and middle 90s, bands like Soundgarden and Silverchair and Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkins and Alice in Chains slowly closed that big attitude gap between rock and old-school metal. And again, this was all part of a new open-mindedness that was in the air. This had the effect of leading to the attitude gap between alternative rock and hip-hop closing even further. Grunge turned out to be a very useful vehicle, a mechanism, the thing that helped flood mainstream rock with an unbelievable number of good ideas. That was probably the coolest thing about grunge. Sure, bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam were great, but the best part of the early 90s was how the vibe changed for all of what was called alternative rock. It was very much like the vibe of the middle and late 70s with punk and new wave. All of a sudden, we were bombarded with all these new, wonderful sounds. Young bands who didn't know that they weren't supposed to mix metal and punk and hip-hop and rap did it anyway and started releasing records. 
And people were buying these records by the bolo. Just victims of the in-house drive-by. They say, don't you say how high? Rage Against the Machine, alternative, metal, punk, hip-hop, and rap all rolled into one, and they would become one of the most influential alt-rock bands of the next decade. In a moment, I'll look ahead to part two of how these different forms of music came together. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Because the relationship and shared history between alt-rock and hip-hop runs so deep, we're going to have to carry this discussion over into the next program. After all, we've only just reached 1992, and we still have the rest of the decade to cover. And that means everything from peak Beastie Boys to the rise of new metal. Until next time, you can get caught up on this series by downloading the official Ongoing History podcast. There are dozens of them available through iTunes or wherever you get your on-demand audio. You can also check in with me at my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day with all manner of music news and information. And you can reach me through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. I show up everywhere. I don't know what it is. I just do. Then there's the old-fashioned method of email. I'm at alan at alancross.ca. See you next time for a continuation of Chapter 5 on our history of alt-rock of the 90s. Alt-rock meets hip-hop. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.